Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. In this week's episode, we're joined by Larry Swedro, a prolific researcher, writer, and speaker on all things capital markets. We discuss all things financial, inflation, allocation, and even hedging. Buckle up because Larry brings unrivaled energy as he shares the empirical, peer-reviewed data that informs his strongest convictions. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Larry Swedro. Welcome to the LAPS Economic Q&A. We're going to be with Larry Swedro today, here to answer some of your questions. For some of you, you might be meeting Larry for the first time. So Larry Swedro is a prolific researcher and author. He's personally authored eight books individually, co-authored another 10. His articles have been published in the Journal of Accountancy, Journal of Investing, Journal of Indexing, just to name a few. And he's a sought-after national speaker with appearances on NBC, CNBC, CNN, and Bloomberg, just to name a few. Larry, that's a pretty awesome uh, bio. I need to kind of work on my own. (laughs) Thank you. Larry, one of the things that we wanted to talk about today is making sense of this crazy and wacky world that we live in. It was a wacky moment in time last time we got together to, to talk about things. And it seems to continue to be that. I often say the only certainty the future promises us is uncertainty. And right now, that's an honored promise. So I'd love to hear kind of how you're seeing things right now as you're reading the headlines and, and looking at markets and looking at economies and looking at kind of the economic data. Yeah. So I have prepared a few high-level comments to make sure that we have plenty of time for Q&A, make sure we address the issues that your clients are interested in. So before I make my comments, uh, I just want to make note of a few things. One, for whatever it's worth, I am a trained economist with a master's degree. I also served, in effect, as chief economist for some very large financial institutions, including the largest mortgage company in the country. And working for Citicorp's investment bank, I sold economic forecasts and market forecasts, etc. But I want to also add, it's really important to understand that whatever I'm telling you, if I know it, then certainly all the other smart people around who are trying to figure out where the markets are likely to go know it. And that information is already embedded in prices. And one of the things anyone who's read my material knows is you should never use forecasts to try to time the market 
All the evidence shows that efforts to do that are highly unlikely to prove productive. And the way I think about forecasts is to think about any forecast should really be thought of only as the mean of a very wide potential dispersion of outcomes. Because there's always, as you said, uncertainty. There are often black swans appear, unknown events that we didn't even think could happen occur. And so your plan should always incorporate those possibilities and make sure you could deal with it. With that said, as a caveat, I'll try to give you my insights as a trained economist and with access to many of the leading economists in the country who I speak to fairly often. So the first thing I would say is that the economy is fairly strong. I think the outlook is reasonably good in terms of historical growth rates. We're going to see slower economic growth than we did last year, that which was a big bounce back from the COVID crisis, of course. And that slower growth down maybe to around 4% or so would still be well above what most economists think the long-term growth rate is likely to be. Philly Fed survey, which I would recommend people follow if you're interested, not that will give you a consensus of about 60, I think, of the country's leading economists. They're looking longer term at about a two and a quarter to two and a half percent growth rate. So if you're getting four, that's a good number. It's going to be less because although we are still getting fiscal stimulus, we have large budget deficits, that stimulus is a lot less than it was in the prior year. And while there's still monetary stimulus with the Fed having negative real interest rates still, the Fed is planning to tighten, raise interest rates, begin what's called quantitative tightening, which means unwinding of their balance sheet, in effect, selling bonds, which of course, if you sell bonds, you drive prices down and yields up. A few other points about why I think the economy is likely to do fairly well if we don't get any black swans, you know, showing up that could damage the economy, which is always possible. Russia, China, Middle East, all kinds of problems can occur. So if we don't get that, here are the other reasons why I think the economy should do reasonably well. One is consumer balance sheets are very strong fueled by two things. One, the massive stimulus and government payments that was made last year in part going into this year, and also a wealth effect from the boom in the stock market really over the last decade, but especially since the COVID crisis, that the easy monetary policy drove asset values way up and people spend partly on their net worth, especially Housing can drive that way. You see people upgrading housing, trading up, things like that. We also have businesses who need to rebuild inventories. And we saw that last month help with economic growth. And we're far from the end of that regime because of the supply chain problems that we've had and workers being unavailable. So that's another reason why. We also have a very tight, if not strong, labor market. The unemployment rate is down to 4%, which 
is not far from what many think is full employment or used to be thought of even as full employment. The problem is, though, we've had a massive decline in the labor force that's willing to go to work, a lot of early retirements. And today, shockingly, I don't think this has ever happened before, we have far more job openings than we have unemployed people. It's like a one and a half to one ratio, I think. So that everyone who wanted a job could actually have one if they were willing to work likely and had the skill sets. Now, often there's not a match, but that kind of labor market bodes very well depending upon your point of view, for wages, right? Because you can demand wages, change job easily. We have a record amount of job quitting ratios because people are confident they can leave one job for a better paying one or a better job with better work environment, et cetera. So that's a strength. And uh, while the Fed, as I mentioned, is going to begin tightening, They've announced that they're going to end their buying of bonds, which keeps interest rates down, suppressing yields, which has actually, I think, been a big mistake. If anyone wants to talk about that, I think they've waited way too long to raise interest rates. That's actually hurt the economy, not helped it uh, for a variety of reasons. But we still have negative real interest rates, and that's highly stimulatory. Businesses are going to borrow at very low rates to be able to spend money, and they can easily generate returns above the cost of capital. So that's the economic outlook. We'd look for around 4%. One other thing that I think is important, at least relative to our listeners, is that corporate profits are likely to be very strong. Latest estimates from analysts, which tend to be too optimistic, so we'll probably undershoot that. Historically, they overestimate earnings growth, but they're looking for roughly 10%. So even if you got something a little bit less than that, that would still be you know, a good number. Now, the other side of the coin is that I think we have inflation risk is to the upside here, even more than we're generally hearing. I think the Fed here made a mistake, waited too long, printed too much money, and You have to have fiscal and monetary policy working together historically to get inflation under control. And we're still printing huge amounts of money through federal deficits, which, in my opinion, is a mistake because we have basically an economy with full employment. And you have the Fed still very easy with interest rates. Now, one thing for people to be aware of, and this is where I'd be a concern, and should, people should consider their, how they adjust maybe their portfolios. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Because my forecast of inflation and interest rates is no better than anyone else's. I'm not saying I can forecast better. But I do think you should think about the risk of higher inflation being higher than the estimates in the market is where the risk lies. And One thing to think about is people may not be aware, but housing or the cost of housing, either implied rents or actual rents, make up about 30% of the CPI. And when housing prices go up, of course, rents follow. And because people typically have one-year leases on their rents, 
that comes in with a big lag. And the way the numbers are computed by the government, it doesn't flow fully into the CPI until I think it's somewhere between 12 and 18 months. So if you got 30% of the CPI likely to run up at much faster than three, four, 5%, we're seeing rents increase more in the neighborhood of 10 or so. I think that's going to put upward pressure on inflation. And I think the Fed has underestimated the risks of this excessive or very large amounts of fiscal and monetary stimulus. They're experimenting here. It's a grand experiment. They think they can tighten quickly enough without pushing the economy into recession, without raising rates too much. We'll find out if they're right. If they are, that's great. We'll have a Goldilocks good economy, not too high inflation. Stock prices should do continue to do well. But I think the risks, at least, are on the upside. So let me just talk about that here. Because of that risk, here's the way I think about interest rates. The Fed has been in the mode of what's called financial suppression. And by that, I mean they're in buying bonds and therefore pushing yields down by pushing prices up. So yields are a lot lower than they would be if the Fed was not acting. So we're not getting what's called price discovery, what yields should be if the government wasn't intervening. Historically, we've had the real rate of interest on one-month treasury bills averaged about 50 basis points. It's much higher when the Fed wants to fight inflation like it did under Volcker, and they can drive rates down even negative in real terms as we're living through now, try to stimulate. But the average is 50 basis points. Let's assume you're an optimist and you think the Fed is going to hit their targets within the next year or so and get inflation down to their 2%. So that means we should have T-bills at that point at two and a half, if you're that optimistic. And the long-term data shows about a 2% term premium. So that would put the 10-year at about four and a half. We're not even at two yet. That much higher yield, to me, creates significant risks for bond portfolios that have significant maturity risk in them. And that could be really bad because you could actually have periods when stocks and bonds both go down, as we saw in January when the market began to become concerned about the Fed tightening. So what I have done with my personal portfolio, and I'm recommending people consider, is to, because we're likely to see a strong economy, you know, a reasonably good economy, I don't think there's that much risk in taking incremental credit risk, but you want to take it where you're getting paid for it. And this is important. So there are two ways you could do it. One is that you could buy a fund like Vanguard's high yield fund to take that credit risk. The problem with that fund is it's really about two thirds bonds and about one third equities. So if equities get hit, it will tend to get hit and it can get hit significantly. In 08, that fund went down something like 25 or 28%. That would be bad. 
that's a real problem because you don't want your equities and bonds getting hit at the same time because now you can't rebalance and with something that's gone up, right? So what we want is a safer asset. We happen to recommend investors include private debt in their portfolios through funds like Cliffwater's private debt fund. It's a middle market lending fund. It has a very similar credit profile to the Vanguard fund in terms of credit risk. But yet, because of the nature of their structure, we don't have time to go deep into it, but I have a white paper for those who are interested, you could share. Their actual default losses are better. That fund today is yielding about seven and a quarter, and it has no duration risk because it's all floating rate debt. So you're getting two benefits, one about a 7% premium over riskless T-bills and about a 3% or so premium or 4% over Vanguard's fund. And you have much less inflation risk. To me, that's a good trade to take some economic cycle risk because this fund, based on 20 years of data, has had less than an average of 1% default losses. So even in an 08, we think this fund might have lost in middle to high single digits, not the 25 or 28% Vanguard did. And in COVID, it only lost 3 or 4% at its bottom. So that, there's another fund called Lendex run by Stonebridge. It's currently yielding 10, a little bit more risky than the Cliffwater fund, but you're getting an extra 3%. So I think those are strategies. If you're willing to take a little bit more risk on economic cycle, if we get a bad recession, because of some shock, you're still getting a very large premium and you're getting rid of the inflation risk. So that's the strategy I think it's worth thinking about. Yeah, I'm familiar with the Cliffwater Middle Market Direct Lending product, but what was the Vanguard one that you referenced? So uh, Vanguard is their high yield bond index fund. It's an index fund that some people, we don't recommend it because we think you should never own high yield bonds. You're not getting paid adequately for the risk. The reason that the Cliffwater fund is a much higher yield it's in what's called an interval fund structure, and it has very limited liquidity. You can get out at least 5% every quarter. And if you're the only one who wants out, you can get your whole investment out. But you could be trapped in that fund if you wanted to get out beyond that amount if everyone asks out. Now, the sad part for investors is they fail to understand that for certainly I would bet every single one of your clients or virtually all of them, none of them, if even if they're in retirement, are taking more than their RMDs or required minimum distributions. And even at age 90, it's not even 10%. And you can get 5% every quarter. So that's 20% a year. So if you don't need the liquidity, and almost everyone doesn't need it for some portion of their portfolio, this is, to me, the right strategy. So I have moved my portfolio, which at one point, because I have very little need to take risk, and I'm now 70, was 30% equities and about 70% safe municipal bonds or CDs, whatever was appropriate at the time and where the asset was being held. I've moved it to more 
like one third equities, one third safe municipals, and one third these alternatives and some others like that. I have one more topic to cover and then we'll open it up to questions. One of the things I hear a lot about is valuations are very high. And that's making people nervous, especially with the threat of the Fed tightening. Valuations are only high in one category, U.S. growth stocks, and especially large cap growth stocks, which is a big part of the S&P in the market. As an indicator of that, the average P.E. over the very long term has typically been about 16% or so. Now, that's with average interest rates. Low interest rates can support higher PEs, right? So today we're at about 21. So that's high for valuations. Growth stocks, however, if you just looked at those large growth, they'd be more like 28. If you look at small value stocks, say any one of the funds we use, they're only about nine. That's below their historical averages, not above. And you would think with low interest rates supporting higher valuations, you should see higher than average valuations for value. But that hasn't been the case. Personally, I think because we've been in a bubble, just like a repeat of the late 90s. And I wrote a piece for Evidence-Based Investor on that for anyone who wants to see that. The same is true outside the U.S. The developed markets, ex-U.S., have PEs of about 14, so below their historical averages, again, with zero or negative interest rates. And emerging markets are at 11.8, so again, below even their averages. So to me, the only place that you have risk, if you will, from a bubble perspective that valuations are too high is in U.S. large growth stocks. And that's not where most of our client portfolios are heavily weighted to. Everywhere else around the world, in value stocks, especially small value, valuations are historically at about the 100th percentile of cheapness, even though value is outperformed for the last 15 months or so. And that's because it went through what some would call a dark winter from really 17 through 20. It was the worst drawdown in history, even worse than the dot-com bubble. But that began to burst late in 2020, and we're seeing some of them. But still, as you can see, when you're looking at nine PEs, when large growth is trading at 28, value is very cheap. So I'll stop there, and we've got... Plenty of time for questions. Larry, what I've loved about the way that you talk about the market, you share your opinion at times, but more than anything, I feel like you do a great job sharing the empirical evidence. And so valuation, though it's, it's interesting and there's information that's, that's reflected in it, it's a very blunt tool from a timing perspective. Is that true? Yeah, you should never use valuations to try to time the market. And the reason you don't want to do that is, again, if you think about a bell curve, here's the right way to think about it. So the way to think about valuations, they do provide information. So a current PE of 20 
if you invert that to get an earnings yield, just like you have a bond yield, so you, a PE of 20 would give you an earnings yield of 5%. So the US today at 21.2 for the overall market has an earnings yield of 4.7%. The developed markets, it's 7.2 earnings yield and emerging it's 8.5. That's using current PE ratios which are about as good as the Cape 10. There's not much different. The Cape 10 is a cyclically adjusted 10-year number. The yields are lower when we do look at that. Cape 10 yields for the US are 2.5, developed 4.8, and 6.2. Now, that's the best predictor we have of future returns. But let's use that number of 20 because it's easy to round. So that gives you an earnings yield of five. The way to think about that is at five is the mean of a very wide potential dispersion of outcomes. So if you looked at every period where the yield was five, you'd see maybe half the time the return would be over five in real terms. You have to add inflation to get the nominal return. So if you had inflation of three, then you would project eight nominal and half the time be less. And the dispersion is pretty wide, even over the next 10 years, where returns tend to smooth out. You need maybe as much as 8% on either side of that to encompass all the possible outcomes. And the evidence also, so if you had five, that means it could be as good as 13 and as bad as minus Three, and that's over a 10-year period. And what the data always shows is that while high valuations predict low future returns, that doesn't mean they're predicting negative returns. It's just like today, if you use that earnings yield of 4.8, that's low. Historically, the market's gotten over 7% real return. But it doesn't mean it's going to be negative, and therefore it doesn't mean should get out of stocks. But it does mean that when PEs are this high, on average, we have had lower returns. And finally, I would add this. There's virtually no correlation to returns in the next year with today's earnings yield. And the best example of that is the period from when Alan Greenspan in January of 97, called the market irrationally exuberant in a speech in Tokyo. And the markets immediately began to crash that day in the US and Japan, dropping 3% or so all over the world. And of course, we know now, 97, 98, 99, the market returned 28% a year, totally ignoring Alan Greenspan. So investors who tried to time the market based on that would have been in deep trouble and then how do you know when to get back in? Maybe after three years, they decide, oh, I was wrong. Then you buy and the market crashes in March of 2000. So I tell people, don't try to time the market. Just take advantage of high valuations because they reduce your need to take risk. You can look at that and say, can I lower my overall equity allocation permanently? And also take advantage of it to certainly rebalance which everyone has had the opportunity to do for the last years, reducing their equities to take advantage of those high values. And now you're buying more cheap international emerging markets 
not because I'm predicting they'll do better, but they are cheaper and I'm just rebalancing my portfolio. That's helpful. Larry, I'm going to toss you kind of a curveball here. You can kind of take the, uh, the question wherever you want to take it. So as an avid reader, I read this Ray Dalio book, The Changing World Order. If you're a fan of FUD, FUD being an acronym for fear, uncertainty, and doubt, I think he does a great job stirring the pot. He's clearly an unbelievably sharp, smart person who's had incredible success in the capital markets. But he's regularly forecasting doomsday scenarios. And so, you know, I went, I found one from 21, I found one in 20, I found one in 2019, found one in 2018. So it's, I guess if you make enough doomsday predictions, they're bound to, to come true at some point. But I, I wanted to talk to you about or ask the question, there's a lot of anxiety right now, loss aversion. We're two and a half times more motivated by avoidance of loss than we are by, you know, intrigued by the upside of gain. Black Swans Happen, one of the many, many books that you publish, addresses how to prepare for black swan events. So from an evidence-based perspective, I just wanted to ask this question, like, how helpful are economic predictions? How helpful is active management? And really, what's the best way, if, if predictions isn't the best way to prepare, how do you prepare for the certainty of uncertainty, so to speak, next black swan? Right. So the first principle is you should always rely on evidence from peer-reviewed academic journals, not people's opinions. And there's a huge body of research that has analyzed the ability of active investors to try to time market, tactically asset allocate, move from stocks to bonds out of the U.S. into international emerging markets, commodities, real estate, whatever is hot. And the research is absolutely overwhelming in that that is a loser's game. Doesn't mean it's not possible to win, but the odds of doing so are so poor, it's not possible to try. It's not prudent to try. Let me give you one example. There's a study done on tactical asset allocation funds, well over 100 of them over a long period of time. These are funds that shift between stocks and bonds, U.S. and international. Gives great freedom to all these smart managers to move money based upon their views. Not one single one of them added value over the period study. There was just the study that was published, which I'm writing up now, on lifestyle funds that are actively managed. These are funds that have consistent asset allocations, so they differ from target funds which gradually lower your equity allocation target date funds as you get older, which is a, a prudent to do. These have the same asset allocation permanently. And therefore, you might shift from a conservative to an aggressive or vice versa based upon your changing circumstance. But the funds have a consistent allocation, but they then use active strategies within them. So they could move around. The evidence showed they underperformed simple benchmark indices that did the same targeting of equities or bonds and stuff. There was another study just published on world global allocation funds that have the same kind of freedom. And they massively underperformed as well. There are books written on the subject. And as I said, I'm a trained economist. And here's what I learned from my own experience 
running trading rooms, trying to take advantage of my own knowledge and stuff, and sold forecasts to some of the largest corporations in the world. When I got a forecast right, I took credit, of course, for my brilliant analysis. And when I got it wrong, I would always blame it on some unforeseen, non-predictable event that, you know, was just bad luck. Well, well, you're then a genius who on occasion gets unlucky. If you're smart, you recognize that probably wasn't the case. And you got it right. It might have been luck. And you got it wrong. It might have been luck also. (laughs) But the evidence shows that there are no good forecasters, period. They don't exist, really. Once you add the burden of costs, and that's a big expense of mutual funds, not just the expense ratio, which is a burden, but their trading costs, which are, can be very large when you're trying to move large amounts of money across stocks and bonds, and investors don't see those expenses. That's a real problem. Ray Dalio happens to be, I think, one of the smartest guys on the planet as a thinker. And I think he has it absolutely right about how to think about portfolios. It's how I think about portfolios and how I think all investors should think about managing risk. So I'm going to walk you through the key principles I think everyone should apply. And it's all based upon logic and evidence. So The first principle is that you should, as I said, make decisions based on evidence, not opinions. And as we just walked through, the evidence is massively overwhelming that while it's possible to win the game of active management, the odds of doing so are so poor you shouldn't try. So you should decide on what risks you want to take and then invest systematically using low-cost passive strategies like index funds as a simple version. We don't use index funds because generally because we think there are negatives that can be minimized or eliminated through better portfolio design. But that's the idea, low-cost systematic strategies. The evidence shows that the markets are highly efficient right? Very hard to outperform by trying to guess which asset classes to jump in and out of. So if you believe the markets are highly efficient, it must follow principle number two has to be that all risk assets should have similar risk-adjusted returns. Doesn't mean they have the same expected returns because, for example, emerging markets are riskier than U.S. stocks, they should have higher expected returns. And we see that almost always, and they have lower valuations. I mentioned the PE is about 12 for emerging versus 21. But once we adjust for risk, their return should be similar. Larry, I want you to say that again, just because it's so profound. All right. So the second principle is that all risky assets should have similar risk-adjusted returns, meaning similar sharp ratios, which adjust for volatility. But risk is not just volatility. It includes things like I mentioned earlier, like liquidity. So if you're investing in Cliff Waters Middle Market Fund, you should get an illiquidity premium because you can't access your money daily. And you're getting that big premium. But don't be fooled into thinking it's a free lunch. 
Now, it might be a free lunch for you if you don't need the liquidity, right? Or I think of it maybe more like a free stop at the dessert tray, because you never know a black swan can show up. If you agree with the first two principles, then the third should follow, which is then portfolios should be diversified broadly across as many unique or independent sources of risk as we can identify. So you don't want to own, I think, just S&P 500 or a total market fund because that gives you exposure to really just one factor. We want to add exposure to assets where other premiums exist, so that are different. So we want to own small stocks, which perform differently. We want to add value stocks. We want to add other things like reinsurance risk, etc. Since we're on this subject, this is really important. Here's what the typical client portfolio looks like. They own an S&P 500 portfolio or a total market fund. 65, they own very little international stocks. Average invest in the US should be 50% or so because the globe is 50%. That's about 55% US now. So something like that. And yet they own less than 10. But if I ask your listeners, if they had a 60-40 portfolio with a million dollars and 600,000 in stocks and 400,000 in bonds, how much of their risk was in stocks? 95% of them say 60% of my risk of my portfolio is in stocks and that's wrong because the stocks you own are going to be much more risky than the bonds you own. And if you just think about it as volatility, Equity volatility is about 20. Bonds, typically in normal environments where we have real returns to safe bonds, we own four to five year average maturities. That is a volatility of roughly five. If we think of a portfolio, and this is the way all sophisticated investors think, they think about in terms of a risk budget, how much risk am I willing to take? How many risk points do I want to put in certain assets and diversify? So if we think about stocks, they would give you 60% times 20 is 1,200 risk points. Bonds in this case would be 40, would be 200. And now your total portfolio is 1,486% is in equities. Just to help show you a different thing, Let's take that 40%, and I'm not recommending you do all of it in Cliff Waters Fund, but let's say you did. The volatility of that fund is more like two, maybe three. So even at three, you would drop your risk in bond portfolio, lowering the risk of the portfolio, yet you have a much higher expected return, right? And this is what you want to see you're also adding a illiquidity premium, which is different than the risk of the market. And the problem is that all risk assets have long periods of poor performance. So you have to have the discipline to stay with it. So Ray Dalio, what he does says, look, all these risky assets, I don't know which is going to perform better. My crystal ball is always cloudy. So I want to create what's called a risk parity type of portfolio. Where I have roughly equal amount of risk 
in U.S. stocks, international, value, momentum stocks, reinsurance, private debt, and other types of assets. And what I think you should do is not exactly create risk parity because it depends on what risks you're willing to take. I may be willing to take emerging market risks more than my neighbor. I feel more comfortable with them. So I'm going to put more weight on them because it's more important to stick with whatever portfolio you have than having, quote, the right portfolio. So if you're comfortable owning value stocks and being able to live through a dark winter of 17 through 20, which was a repeat of 96 through 99, and don't panic and sell, you're like Warren Buffett, you'll wait out that period, then you can own more value stocks. If you're less comfortable, then I would own less value, but you should own some because they perform differently than growth stocks. So you want to dampen that risk of owning, having all your eggs in that one basket, which might do horribly for a very long time. And I'll mention this, there are three periods. This is going to shock, I'm willing to bet, almost all your listeners. There are three periods of at least 13 years where the S&P underperformed totally riskless treasuries. And one of them was just recently, 2000 to 12, that's 13 years, 66 to 82, that's 17 years, and 29 through 43, that's 15 years. And in each of those periods, value stocks dramatically outperformed. And in the case of the 66 to 82, it was like, I think, seven or 800% cumulative difference in returns. So that's why we want to diversify portfolios. And that's what Ray Dalio, well, I haven't read the book yet. I'll have to pick it up. Is You have to diversify, of course, different risks. Don't be concerned by reinsurance had three bad years from you know, 18, 19, and 20 or whatever. Stocks have 10 bad years and people don't abandon them. But the good news is you don't have too much in that one reinsurance basket and you're able to buy more. And now the expected return to reinsurance is in double digits because the premiums have jumped way up. So that's the right way to think about this. Broad diversification because all risky assets should have similar risk adjustment. Let me add one last point. Let's say risk asset A, let's call it U.S. stocks, large cap stocks, you think have high risk adjusted returns and emerging markets are low. If the market thought that, once we adjust for risk, money would flow out of emerging markets, right? Because they're low expected returns, lowering their valuations, that doesn't change their earnings. So you now get higher expected returns. Money flows into U.S. stocks, driving up their valuations, lowering their expected returns until you get an equilibrium. So unless you think you're smarter than the market, and there's no evidence that there are people who really can do this, you're better off simply broadly diversifying and then just having the discipline to stay the course, act like the lowly posted stamp. And just stick to your letter until you reach this destination. Don't let fear or greed take over. Hey, Larry, I think you and I have both read Phil Huber's book, yes. 
News Edge, it reminded me a lot of your book in terms of reducing the risk of a black swan. And so we're starting to incorporate this into our portfolio. We've got a couple of questions about real estate here. So I'm going to try to thread the needle on this question. Real estate would be kind of an asset class that at one point was clearly alternative. Now it's becoming a little bit more mainstream. But how would an outsized real estate inflation spike influence your REIT exposure? Let's assume it's a public REIT exposure. Any particular thoughts on that? Yeah. Okay. So that's a good question. REITs have historically been treated as, as you noted, an alternative investment. However, the research shows they're really not that unique in general. And the reason is you can replicate their performance, basically. In other words, they look like this. Let me give you go back to the example I gave. You can replicate the performance of Vanguard's high-yield fund. My memory serves roughly two-thirds bonds and one-thirds small value stocks or equities in general. And you would get over the long term very similar risk and return. That's the way to do it. And it would be much more tax efficient way to do it, right? Because you would get the capital gains from the equity portion of the portfolio. And you can own municipal bonds, say, for the bonds. Same thing is true of real estate. If real estate acts roughly like two-thirds small value stocks and one-third bonds, because it has Obviously, it acts somewhat like a bond because you can have long-term leases. So the evidence says you don't really need real estate, at least public real estate in a portfolio. There's no great harm, but it's not a very tax-efficient asset either. And therefore, it would tie up space in tax advantage accounts for people who have limited allocate. So we tended not to include it, but if people wanted it, we don't think it's a big harm. Now, private real estate is different. One, if you own private real estate, there it can be owned in a fund that where most of the return is return of capital and becomes more tax efficient. And it can also give you broad benefits of diversification, just like a public fund. But there you also get an illiquidity premium. And that's a big advantage, just like we mentioned with in private debt, right? you got 7% versus 4 But Anytime you securitize an asset, you make it liquid, people are willing to pay more for it. So private real estate, that's, by the way, that's why companies go public, right? There's typically a 20 to 30% premium. You get a higher valuation. That's the liquidity premium. Now, the problem of private real estate is that you also have a lot higher expenses, 10 basis points versus maybe two and 20 or something like that. So you have to find a better vehicle, I think. I wouldn't pay two and 20 to capture it. Then all of the illiquidity premium basically would go to the private uh, vehicle. There is a fund just in the uh, interest of full disclosure that I own started using it recently because it was a private vehicle with a firm that has huge advantages and used to do private, but they created a public vehicle. It's not cheap, but it's not two and 20. It's run by Blackstone. It's the largest private real estate investor in the world. 
And there you can capture illiquidity premium. What I like about that fund also is they have structured it to be better designed for the environment I am particularly concerned about. Now, if you bought a lot of real estate, say with 10-year leases, that's not going to help you much in an inflationary environment. They focus on much shorter term leases because they're concerned about the same thing. So that was one advantage. The fee structure is much lower, more like I think 1.3%. And there's a hurdle rate before they get their incentive. And I think it's 15%, not 20. And the hurdle, I think, is above a 5 or a 6% return. So that fund is at least worth considering. And I'll add this. If I did private real estate, I would only do it where the fees were lower. And I would only do it with a very large player like Starwood or Blackstone. They're, I think, the two leaders. And I chose Blackstone after my doing my due diligence. The reason is scale matters in real estate. In public equity, scale is bad. You get bigger your trading costs go up. That's a problem. In real estate, if you're trying to buy, say, a $10 million strip center comes on the market, you're going to be competing against hundreds of buyers. All the public REITs out there would bid on that. You're bidding on a $4 billion Bellagio product coming to the market. There's maybe one or two other people who could bid on that, get it done quickly. And so, you actually get better execution when you have scale. So those would be the two criteria. I could tell you that, by the way, that if you recommend that to your clients, there is available on the Orion platform and Schwab and Fidelity can hear. And if you needed introductions there, Jared, I'd be happy to provide them. No, we're, uh, we're familiar. We're familiar. Are asset classes to you like children to parents? Do you have a favorite? If I were to say what are your three favorite asset classes to protect against inflation, what would they be? Well, protecting against inflation, there's only one pure hedge against inflation, and that's tips. A hedge means you're buying insurance. It'll move kind of one for one. Now, the problem with tips currently is that the yields are negative. So basically, you're guaranteeing to lose money in real terms even before taxes. If you go back to 2090 and 08, real tip yields were 3 4%. So they were a great hedge. You were getting paid and getting rid of the inflation risk. Now, the yield on a five-year tip today is minus one, and the yield on a 10-year is minus 50. That's much better than where it was even a month or two ago. I think there's a better alternative now, although it's not a pure hedge. I wouldn't argue against using tips. The premium there is not too bad. If you go out 10 years, that's not too bad a premium. Pay away 50 base. But I think the fund Lendex from Stone Ridge yielding 10% with only one year of inflation risk and Cliffwater with no inflation risk and a 7% yield. So you would need, if you're getting seven versus minus one, you need inflation of over eight to be behind with Cliffwater based upon the expected returns now. Now, of course, Cliffwater could do worse if you get an economic recession. Tips would not be hurt by that. 
But I think that's a big premium over the expected inflation rate. And so an investor might think about a combination of both of them. And that's the way I do it. I don't have all my bond money in Cliffwater's fund. I have some in safer bonds. That would be my favorite choice today. Very short-term assets. I think real estate that has short-term leases, like single-family homes for rental or apartments where you have one-year leases, those are going to turn quickly. That's much better than other investments, say, in an office building where you might have a 10-year lease or a warehouse with a 10-year lease from Walmart. So you have to really do a deep due diligence, and that's not likely to be able to do for most individual investors. Our clients own and operate real estate businesses, and I'd love for you to speak to this. I own a home. I have a sixplex. I'm a business owner in Dilap itself. But Dilap doesn't, we don't value it daily. We don't even value it yearly. I haven't valued the sixplex since I actually got it appraised. It might peak on Zillow or you know, LootNet. But the, there isn't very much noise. It's not getting marked to market, but it, that creates a lot less noise. So it's, we're not actually tracking or measuring standard deviation. We, we can't know what volatility is. There isn't actually market for it. So can, can you delineate the difference between my perception of risk versus if we were to objectively measure an asset class that's not being valued the same way that it would This is a real problem with any illiquid investments like private equity. Private equity tends to look at things every quarter and have great freedom of mark to market, but it's ludicrous. For example, if you were an investor in private equity and tech stocks in March of 2000, and then the tech stocks crash 70%, and you're just marking it there because there's been no trade, it's ridiculous to think that. Private real estate, the evidence shows, has a what's called serial correlation of returns, meaning the returns look this month tells you what next month is going to be, and they're just the same. That's phony, and it works with a lag. Eventually, it catches up when you do appraisals that actually market to market. Now, that actually, I would argue, because of human behavior, is a good thing for investors because we know, here's the evidence, your invest people on this call should pay attention carefully to what I'm about to say. Their research shows that the less frequently you check the value of your portfolio, the better your returns, because checking can only cause you to do two things. Doing nothing, which is the better thing, unless it requires rebalancing, or panic selling, which is almost always a bad thing. So what the evidence says, people who are kind of Rip Van Winkle, maybe they check it once a year when they get their report, don't do anything. And therefore, they're buy and hold. They invest more like Warren Buffett rather than the guy who watches Jim Cramer every night, is checking his stock prices, his ETF values during the day. They're really likely to be tempted to trade when trading's not in their interest. So I actually think illiquid investments actually have a behavioral bias that's a positive effect that can actually help investors stay disciplined. They're less likely to trade. But that doesn't mean that the investments aren't moving in value. You're just not seeing it. It's a phony illiquidity. It's a phony stability. All right, Larry, we got, I'm going to have some fun. 
We got the Super Bowl this weekend. We have about a minute left. So in 30 seconds or left, I want you to speak to sequence of return risks, sustainable withdrawal rate, and maybe kind of a, a generic statement of asset allocation entering retirement. I would tell people regarding sequence of risk, that's really an important topic. I would urge you to read my book. You can hold up that. It's right in the introduction. We have section called The Four Horsemen of the Retirement Apocalypse, four reasons why I think investors have to be prepared for much lower future returns. And then we talk about sequence risk specifically there. That's the risk that you get great returns in the long term. But if you retire and the markets crash at that point, you can't recover because you're withdrawing those assets and you don't get the bounce back. So you can get great long-term returns as an investor in 73 through today got 10%. But if you try to take out 7%, which was the real return, adjusted for inflation every year, you would have been bankrupt in nine years. Even though with foresight, you knew perfectly well, you could have withdrawn that 10% if there was no sequence risk. All right, Larry, thanks for our time today. We are at the, uh, the end of the game, but Larry did reference his book. I had the opportunity to write a forward for a bunch of these books, and we have a bunch. So if you are interested in a book, email me, email our team, and we'll get one in the mail to you. So Larry, thanks so much for our time today, and Larry, we'll have to do it again this summer. All righty. Sounds like a plan. Take care. Thanks so much.